0: Well, good morning, Grace. One of the most foolish things that we can ever do is to attempt to deceive ourselves and to believe that we could somehow hide from God, to hide our thoughts, our words, our actions, our hearts. No matter how carefully we craft and project a particular image of ourselves to other people, God knows our hearts. No matter how much effort we put into concealing them, Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what our passage in Luke 16 is about this morning. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. It's a passage about the contrast between the failed project of self-justification and the better way of life that is offered to us in God's kingdom. Life in God's kingdom comes with the promise that not only do we not have to fear God's knowledge of our hearts, but we might even have the ability to welcome it. So we pick up our passage this morning in verse 14 of Luke 16, and as we do, we learn that the Pharisees overheard at least some of what Jesus was saying in the passage that Fred preached last week. Now, in particular, uh, their attention is drawn to his comments about love of money and devotion to money. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Luke tells us that they ridiculed him because they themselves were lovers of money. So we're going to see this morning that Jesus responds with a warning, that's verse 15, an invitation in verse 16, an answer to an objection in verse 17, and an extension of his claim in verse 18. Let's sit at his feet and receive his word. I'll begin reading in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, this is, on the one hand, a tiny little passage. On the other hand, there's a lot of meat on the bone. We ask that by your mercy and by your spirit, you would make us ready receivers of your word this morning. Help us to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive with enthusiasm, the words of life. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So, uh, in verse 15, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they justify themselves before men, but God sees their hearts. This is a warning, to be sure, and a sober warning at that. But the fact that Jesus is pronouncing a warning to them means there's still time to heed it. Isn't it amazing that at this late hour, Jesus is still warning the Pharisees? In the next verse, this warning is going to turn to an invitation to a better way. We have to ask, though, what does it mean to justify oneself before men? I think at a minimum, it involves the attempt to keep up outer appearances by means of seemingly favorable comparative righteousness towards others, right? people we, we feel that we might favorably compare to. Uh, for example, <clears throat> in Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus said of the Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So there's, a, there's an emphasis on outer appearance. And in a few weeks from now, uh, in Luke 18, you'll hear Jesus uh, give the parable to some who trust in themselves In a way that portrays the Pharisees' uh, prayer as exalting himself in comparison, so comparative righteousness standards, to others that he is glad he is not like. Among the people he will say he's glad he is not like uh, will include adulterers and tax collectors. Others as well. Those two speak to sex and money, which are some of the things in Jesus' crosshairs this morning, so that'll be interesting But in any case, self-justification foolishly results in feeling good about myself based on what I allow others to see, while at the same time anesthetizing myself to what God actually sees. It's so dangerous, isn't it? Because it makes room for hypocrisy, for secretly indulging in what we really love but wish to keep out of view. Now, the Pharisees' path of self-justification was oriented to the observance of the law, and they had elaborated this into an abundance of man-made stipulations uh, with, a, with a view, in their case, to, to the public display of their virtue and righteousness so as to be seen and admired by others. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23. The motivation for that kind of behavior is clearly driven by a desire to earn praise for themselves rather than being motivated by love of God and neighbor. It is a self-deceptive practice. They've come to the point where they've convinced themselves that what they're about is the law of God when, in fact, Jesus says they're all about self-promotion and accumulation. Now, there's another danger with self-justification and it's this it's easier to see in others than it is in ourselves. So we hear it described in the Pharisees and we go, ah, self-justifiers. The reason the passage is here for us this morning is that Luke would warn us as well, wouldn't he? Our temptations to self-justify before men may look different than theirs. Maybe you're not uh, meticulous about Sabbath-keeping, for example but fallen humans are all tempted to prop ourselves up by means of comparative righteousness. And of course, we're very selective in our comparisons, aren't we? We compare ourselves to those whom we think we will compare favorably. If worse comes to worse and we're not stacking up against anyone, that's when people trot out the, well, at least I'm not Hitler (laughs) comparison. There's always somebody we feel like we, okay. Now, this is, this is one reason that cancel culture is so powerful. People pile on the person who strays outside the socially accepted standards so that they can claim the high ground and feel good about themselves, right? That's one expression of self-justification. Maybe others take refuge and how well your children behave in comparison to other people's children. I read a great article on mom guilt this week. This, uh, this self-justification mu- muscle is so tricky because she can feel, mom can feel, so accomplished in one moment and deeply burdened by a sense of comparative failure in the next. If Her refuge lies in her performance as mom. She'll be deeply insecure, won't she? She may may see her kids' actions directly in relation to how they either enhance or diminish her status in the eyes of others. It's a dangerous trap. If that's not you, maybe your refuge sounds like, well, at least I haven't missed a day of the Bible reading plan in 2023. Maybe you're tempted to take assurances from the fact that your financial savvy has better secured your nest egg against the threats of inflation than some of your neighbors and friends. The point is, this trap of comparative righteousness has an allure for all of us, doesn't it? But it fails every time. And Jesus tells us why. Because God sees the heart and God is not impressed by our manufactured trophies of comparative righteousness. He says at the end of verse 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So self-justification is a false covering every bit the way that Adam and Eve's stitched together fig leaf garments were inadequate self-coverings after their sin. And yet... We're tempted to pursue this project, aren't we? We're tempted to pursue the project of self-justification to protect our own consciences. Sometimes sometimes we'll soldier on in bold denial of the gaping hypocrisies we're trying to hide. It feels too hard to admit them to ourselves, let alone to others and to God. If we give up the project of self-justification, where else can we turn? Well, Jesus has something to say about that and we'll get to it in a minute. But because we can never live up even to our man-made standards, let alone the standards of the God who sees the heart, some of us may at times find that we turn instead to self-loathing. Curiously, I would would argue that self-loathing is its own kind of attempt to manage self-justification. It's like the the other side of the coin. Now, let me be clear. I'm talking about self-loathing. There are multifaceted roots. There can be an abundance of informing factors. I don't get paid to do this for a living, right? The counseling piece, so we can't account for all of it. It would definitely be person-specific. Past traumas may be informing, Uh, abuses can form the voices of some of these inner accusations. Spiritual warfare, I have no doubt, is often in play. Nevertheless, self-loathing can be fueled by a sense that I'm not measuring up, and so I do deserve the self-torment. Friend, what the kingdom of Christ calls for is not self-atonement of any kind, but repentance and faith. Turning afresh from sin and trusting that Christ's covering is as sufficient for me today as it was the first day I trusted him. In fact, the attempt to make myself pay for my failures and sin, when Christ has already fully paid, actually dishonors his sacrifice, doesn't it? Just like self-justification does, even if it may appear humble on the surface. Repentance and self-hate can be confused, but they are not the same thing. Just like uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul differentiates worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, they can look similar on the outside, can't they? They both shed tears. They may both express grief, but they produce very different results. So if this is you this morning, and God puts you on my heart. And I want to share a word of encouragement that I, that I think the Lord has for you this morning. This is from uh, Todd Strid. He's a faculty member at CCEF. He wrote an article entitled Self-Hatred and the Loving Voice of God. Here's what he says. <clears throat> the voice of God says, I am greater than your heart. The voice of God tells us that he gets the final say. He quotes 1 John 3.20. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. In other words, God gets to decide how he feels about you. Whether you are wanted, the names he calls you by, whether you can or should be touched, and your inclusion in his family, you do not get to decide. Neither do your parents or your culture or the media. Your emotions might not agree, but your emotions don't get to decide. Only God gets to decide, amen? That is good news for strugglers. And there are, again, there are many factors at work. If you need help, we would like to offer it. The prayer team will be available at the end of the service. Uh, we, we, can, we can point you in the direction and, and make provisions for, uh, for counseling services. Certainly your grace group shepherds, if they know that this is a burden of yours, want to reach out to you and encourage you. But the point, uh, we can, do I, if, if I do this, will that just go to black? Well, not yet. We can just go to black on that. <laughs> the point that we all need to heed, regardless of the forms that self-justification takes, Which side of the coin? It's a failed project, isn't it? Whether it's self-exaltation or self-denigration, both keep us from turning to Christ's uniquely sufficient provision. So, what about you? Where do you fall prey to the false gospel of comparative righteousness? What are you hiding or hating about yourself this morning? You can confess it today for the first time or for the thousandth time. God already knows. Confession does not bring him up to speed. It brings you toward the heart of humility and readiness to receive his mercies. It's good medicine for us. So Jesus is warning these Pharisees and and us by extension about the bankrupt project of self-justification and he wants to offer a better way. That better way we come to in verse 16 where Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until John. What's he doing there? He's dividing redemptive history into eras of promise and fulfillment with John the Baptist as the hinge character between the two. Now, We can't say everything about this this morning. Uh, Plenty of ink has been spilt, let's say. But I think the key point is this. The law and the prophets were ultimately designed to point beyond themselves, which is why Jesus, after his resurrection on the road to, to Emmaus, tells the disciples in Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me And the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, the issue that we face in regard to the law is not a problem in the law itself. It doesn't have a defect. It isn't deficient. The problem is rather in the sinner trying to respond to the law. A few verses very quickly. Romans 7.12 tells us the law is holy, righteous, and good, Romans 8, 3 and 4 tells us that God sends his son in our place because the law was weakened by what the flesh could not do. Right? The problem's not with the law, the problem is with the sinner. Or Galatians 3.24 tells us the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. The law, here's the other image. Randy used this illustration a few weeks ago. The law, in some respects, is to sin what the MRI machine is to the detection of cancer. You see what's going on there? Uh, Think about the MRI machine and cancer for a moment first. The MRI machine plays an indispensable role in the detection of cancer, right? Without, without, Without awareness that we have the condition, we won't seek treatment for it. So it is absolutely necessary. But the person who learns from the MRI machine that he or she has cancer does not then turn to the MRI machine to treat the cancer, right? That needs to be handled by a physician. Uh, Similarly, the law's function towards the detection of sin cancer works in in kind of a similar fashion, doesn't it? The law performs an indispensable function in making us aware, I can't keep this. I can't do this, right? It's not a defect in the law, it's a defect in me. Self-justification would learn that lesson and then keep trying to go back to self-management in order to, you with me? When the point is that if we learn the lesson that the law has for us, we should turn to the great physician instead. So the good news of the kingdom Is that Jesus, our great physician, has paid it all? He obeyed perfectly so that we can hide in him from the sting of sin rather than trying to hide from him in our sin. Uh, Galatians 4 4 to 5, for you note takers, is a beautiful passage in that regard. But the application of his redeeming righteousness uh, to us, which welcomes us into his kingdom, is then anchored and secured by his sacrificial exchange on the cross. So the good news is that by his life and death, our sufficiency is secure in Christ. Not ourselves, but in Christ. And as the passage on the back of the sanctuary reminds us every time we come in and head out of here, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, God looked on his heart too, and he never once found it to be divided. Jesus was the same in private, where only God sees, as he was in public, where everyone else sees. And though he was found to be perfectly righteous, he allowed himself to be uncovered, ridiculed, Mocked and crucified as though he himself did not measure up. And he did that so that you and I, the ones who in actual fact do not measure up, could be covered, accepted, welcomed, and secured. So because of that sacrifice, Jesus is here urging the Pharisees to forsake self-justification and enter the kingdom by embracing their sufficiency in him. I take the second half of verse 16 uh, to to be, at least in my translation, more likely translated by the the footnote. Everyone is forcefully urged into it. Jesus is urging them to enter his kingdom. It doesn't look like in, in context Everyone there is actually doing that, but they are being urged to do it. That's not my main point. Here's the more important consideration for now. Have you done that? It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Enter his kingdom. You can do that today. You can trust him right now. We would love to pray with you after the service. If that's something God has prompting you, calling you, urging you, exhorting you to do. It can be scary, right? Because you have to lose your life to gain it. You have to give up the program of self-management and self-justification. But it's also profoundly more secure. You just lay down the pretense of your own inadequate righteousness, and you run into the safest arms in all the universe. When you begin to enjoy that kind of security, you are freed to ask the Lord to show you more and more of what he would have you turn from so that you can reflect yet more beauty of Christ's character. This kind of person welcomes the gaze and the knowledge of God. Consider these words from David at the end of Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. He's not hiding, he's opening. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Wouldn't you like to be freed to pray like that, to live like that? Well, so far, so good, verses 15 and 16, right? Jesus is telling them, if you really want to follow the law, embrace me. But you can almost hear the inner objections of the Pharisees. It's implied, but, but, but you, Jesus is answering an, an, an implied objection. You know, wait, 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 wait. If the law and the prophets were until John, are you saying that the kingdom is lawless? We're protecting Torah, Jesus. Are you tearing it down? What do we say here? There is a tension between the statement in verse 17 that the law is not void and the statement in verse 16 that there is nevertheless something new after John the Baptist. Daryl Bach, a commentator, a New Testament scholar, he answered the question this way. He said, the law points to the kingdom and so does not fail, right? That's If that's the design purpose, it doesn't fail. And, Doing that, It doesn't fail because its goal is Jesus and its authority is expressed through him. So the law fulfills its designed purpose. Jesus doesn't abolish the law but fulfills it, Matthew 5. He does so perfectly in himself as indicated in the Galatians 4 passage, but also, also in his reign of righteousness by which he not only forgives sinners who come to him, but he also empowers those whom he has forgiven with his Holy Spirit that leads them to live lives of increasing righteousness. Galatians 4.6 fleshes that out. So yes, absolutely, those in the kingdom of God learn to live lives of increasing, increasingly transformed righteousness, but that transformation is the fruit of their justification and not the basis of it. Then you get all the way down here to verse 18. And in it, Jesus actually further confirms that his kingdom is not a reign of lawlessness, but rather a reign of righteousness that exceeds their standards and expectations as he shifts the focus from love of money to easy divorce. Uh, At first, and I have wondered about this one for a long time it may seem that verse 18 is disconnected from the rest of the context. A lot, there's plenty of divorce and, and remarriage passages, even from, uh, from, from Jesus. They all have at least more elaborated context than this. And so I've wondered, how does it fit? And but, but, but divorce, like love of money, is another issue that exposes the Pharisees' hearts. Okay, So their, their, issue, their issue at bottom is a misdirected, Heart. some of them at least some of them were self-justifying lovers of money and also self-justifying consumers of sex through what amounts to essentially no-fault divorce aspirations if pursued those aspirations result in covenant disregarding and spouse discarding consumption of their wives let me let me Let me try to explain what I I think is going on here. I think that some of these Pharisees are justifying themselves, comforting themselves, trying to claim the high ground of not, say, for example, visiting prostitutes and only enjoying sex inside a marriage covenant and so not obviously committing adultery But as they were pursuing easy divorce to move from one spouse to the next, Jesus who exposes the heart says, you absolutely are committing adultery. Takes a little bit of a comment on uh, the rabbinical views of divorce in Jesus's day. There were a few of them, we're not gonna talk about all of them. But some of the views in Jesus's day promoted shockingly easy to obtain divorces. For example, there was a school of thought uh, known as the Hillel School or Rabbi Hillel who said he may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. A bad meal. Another rabbi said he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. Trade in the old model for the... This sounds like exactly the kind of thing that Jesus has in his crosshairs here. Shallow, godless, unrighteous abandonment of covenant vows for the sake of a no-fault divorce and what amounts to adulterous relationships. When when the second half of verse 18 goes on to say that he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery, I think think he probably has in mind a a condemnation of Herod Uh, because Just two verses prior, Jesus has hung the hinge of redemptive history on the the hinge figure of John the Baptist, right? And Herod has beheaded John the Baptist. Why? John the Baptist is telling Herod that he should not have his brother's wife Herodias. So Herodias divorces Herod's brother and marries Herod and John is saying this ought not to be. And at the prompting of Herodias, Herod has John's head removed from his shoulders. In any case, Jesus hits these fellas right between the eyes, doesn't he? He says that some of them at least are using outward displays of righteousness before men to try to cover up greedy and adulterous hearts. So, so clearly it's Jesus and not them who ultimately has regard for the righteousness of the kingdom. Well, verse 18 is, it's not covering the whole gamut of divorce and remarriage issues. It's addressing a specific concern, but it does so by the summation of Jesus' core concern about divorce. And the point of that concern for us is that we also should not be looking for easy divorces and misguided pretenses for obtaining them. There are other contexts, as I mentioned, in which more is said about divorce. But I want to tease this one out a little bit, given what the rest of our passage says about the dangers of self-justification and the better way of life in Christ's kingdom. It's not hard to imagine, is it? That some might internally boast or be tempted to boast because their marriage avoided divorce where other marriages around them fell. It's also not hard to imagine someone who has been divorced beating himself or herself up over that broken marriage. So I can't do everything here, but, but I want to try to push this in a few different pastoral directions, okay? So bear with me. Number one. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as a good divorce. The Bible never commands it and never celebrates it. In fact, we know that God hates divorce. Divorce is a broken mirror. Here's what I mean by that. Human marriage was made to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. And when a human marriage ruptures by means of divorce, it, it, is, it is broken in the sense of what it is intended to reflect. That is to say, it portrays a, a, a potential scenario by which Christ would leave his bride. And he will never do that. It, in that sense, misrepresents Christ. And for that reason, we want to, we want to help at grace, hold together all the marriages that we can. Secondly, there are acknowledgments in Scripture of when divorce may be permitted in a fallen world, adultery and abandonment essentially being the two explicitly named cases. It would take another occasion to work all that out, but that is there. Thirdly, if you are If you are in a marriage relationship and suffering abuse or intimidation in your marriage, that is, in a word, unacceptable. We want you to become safe immediately and notify your elders. You can do that before you leave today. We are standing by. Abuse is not headship. Sadly, some abusers say that it is. So let me be very clear. It is not. Can any of us imagine Jesus treating his bride in such a manner? Number four. The permissions or the exceptions in a fallen world, let's be clear what they are not. They are not equated to falling out of love or a marriage that, that has lost its spark. It is not... As I have sometimes very sadly heard, it's not, I found a soulmate. That soulmate is not my spouse. Surely God wants me to be happy. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul te- one of the other passages, Paul tells people there who are married to unbelievers who do not feel like soulmates to stay in the marriage. If their spouse will stay and is not endangering them. And if that sort of person should not seek a divorce, then again, not many of us should. Given all that marriage means, God does not mean for marriage to be easily dissolved. In that same context, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul understands that even the best marriages come with worldly trouble, troubles, First Corinthians 7:28. And by and large, those troubles are not grounds for divorce. Instead, they are the sorts of things that we vowed to persevere through when we entered our unions for better or worse. Number five, what if you are presently contemplating marriage? Like, like you're you know, going to join us for the engaged couples class or you know, I teach a class on uh, these types of themes at Biola. Uh, In most cases, uh, couples who who involve themselves in in those kinds of uh, classes and trainings are are not yet married. Though I do want to reiterate, if if you are recently married or just seriously dating, like should we get engaged, um, we'd love to have you join us for the Engaged Couples class. Here at, at Grace as well. But in any case, it, it's, often, it's often true that those in, who, who go, go to those kinds of settings that participate in those kinds of classes, it's often the case that many of them are still quite starry-eyed about marriage. And that's understandable, right? It should be. And of course, when marriage approximates its design, it is a delightful blessing. But because we are sinners, marriage is also full of heart. You know, on the day that you say for better or worse, that's relatively easy to do because it's abstract. On that day, you're pledging a vow to pay a cost. You have no idea what the cost will be. Of course, say it a thousand times. Friend, if you're contemplating marrying well, you must give attention to marrying someone with whom you can do the four worst part of the vow. The part of the vow that nobody puts on their engagement you know, announcement, their engagement photos, <laughs> but you cannot afford to bypass it because what is easy to ignore during infatuation will not always be easy to ignore. Greater than our vow keeping, of course, is the fact that Jesus pledged and paid the hardest vow for his bride, and if you are in him, you have the security of that love whether your human marriage outwardly appears to be rampantly successful or a broken mess. Maybe, maybe you're in a struggling marriage. It's not dangerous. Not a lot of companionship either. Roommate mode. That's your term for it, isn't it, Scott? Feel like strangers living under the same roof. Or what if someone's already divorced? feels ashamed and stigmatized because of it. Maybe is thinking, I shouldn't have done that. The point of the kingdom is that you can't and don't have to rely on self-justification or self-berating. There is a better and more secure way. So whatever the case may be, we would like to make ourselves available to talk with you and to bear burdens with you. And and again, there will be prayer up front after the service and definitely your grace group shepherds, if you're in a grace group, they know these to be your burdens, they'll be checking in with you. It's a good prompt to consider joining a grace group if you're not in one, that kind of shared burden bearing. But additionally, in particular because of the, the pain points associated with this issue, if you are someone who feels the pain of a broken marriage or you're enduring a hard marriage or maybe you're even in a pleasant marriage that nevertheless lacks spiritual intimacy because only one of you at the present belongs to the Lord. If, that, if that's you, then we have some folks who are planning to make ourselves available this Wednesday evening on the patio out here at 6.45 while youth is going on upstairs, okay? We'll be there for a couple of hours for or as long as it would be valuable to you. I'd say bring a jacket. It might be chilly. But it's an opportunity to share in an extended way, even, even more so than, than on your way out of church perhaps this morning, to, to grieve, to pray, to encourage you, Men can meet with men. Women can meet with women. Couples can meet with couples. Many of these folks who will be available for this have recently gone through some helpful equipping. And if we find it to be the case that some of your needs are beyond our reach, we'll help you get connected with those who can offer more help. Okay, so... Somebody's wrestling with a sense of stigma. I get, I get that that could be like, uh, oh, if I show up... They'll know I'm struggling. We're, we're, the, the point is we know people are struggling. That's okay. We don't have to self-justify and we don't have to hide. Along those same lines, we mentioned uh, the single parent encouragement event that's coming up on uh, March the 10th. We understand that people can come by single parenthood in a variety of ways, including by divorce. Again, there are no stigmas or conditions attached about who can attend this event. If you're a single parent, we want to have you there, no matter how that became true for you. I'm really excited about how this is. Sh- I mean, it'll be a nice meal and fellowship and prayer and and, and, and really wonderful in that regard. But um, some things I'm not. I I don't feel like quite dialed in to to say what what's going on. But man, I'm pretty excited. Uh, it's gonna yeah. So anyway, file that away. All right. Uh, Okay, so to return to the central point, the way of Christ's kingdom is the way of wisdom and security. In its grip, you can welcome God's gaze for the two following reasons. One, you can welcome his gaze because he sees you in Christ. And two, because as you treasure Christ more and more, You and I learn to welcome the surgery that cleanses more and more of the old self. So heed the warning, friend. Embrace his urgent invitation. There is no better place to be.